if you ask me what makes a great seller within the SMB and the mid-market space. It's more about understanding where opportunities are and being more decisive and actionable towards customer needs at scale. The common answer would be you have to be a listener. Mm. I think it's Mm. a very service level default instinct for people to perceive salespeople as talkers. I think that the best salespeople I've ever worked with listen more than they talk. And That all ties back into the commitment for genuinely understanding what the customer needs. You're not going to be an effective salesperson unless you can deeply internalize that. Welcome to the episode of the Profitable Property Management Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Muela, with Grace During from Fine Digs. Grace, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jordan. Uh, Grace, we met each other about two years ago, and I'm excited to reconnect now and hear a little bit about your background. For those that don't know, tell us what exactly does Fine Digs do? Yeah, so um, a little bit about my background. I joined the findings team two years ago because I was really inspired by the commitment to the renter experience. Even as a much earlier stage product than where we are now, I felt like the vision for the longer term commitment to improving the rental application experience, the improvement to building out an easier way to lease homes faster, and eventually some of the cool stuff that we have in store down the road uh, to really fundamentally up-level the the renter journey. was what got me so excited about joining the team over, I guess it was over two years ago at this point. But my whole background um, actually isn't in the property management space. This is my first role that I've taken on. I oversee our sales and partnerships team. Um, And we, you know, I had worked at a couple other tech companies. I feel really passionately about scaling startups. And so joining early stage teams and really making sure that we can build out these meaningful customer journeys and, all that entails uh, is really what got me excited about joining the team. What do you love about startups? What does that mean, like the idea of being into that? What is the specific flavor profile of what you're into there? Yeah, um, I mean, I can I can answer that in a couple of different directions because I think when you work at a startup, so much of your professional life becomes intertwined with your personal life because it really does feel like a commitment so far beyond just a typical nine to five. When you're at a relatively early stage company, whether that means less than fewer than 10 people, fewer than 50 people, fewer than 100 people, whatever the concept of startup kind of means to you. Um, People have different risk tolerances and (laughs) different, uh, you know, (laughs) I guess, propensities for chaos. Um, But when, when I think about startups, I think about just this absolutely massive challenge to go tackle and a relatively clean slate with not a ton of uh, blueprint to be able to go execute. So having a really clear vision on what the end goal for Find Exits, fundamentally improving the renter journey and that experience uh, entails a lot. And so 
you can interpret it in a lot of different ways as you go through the entire process of building out all the different functionality to improve the rental application, to improve the leasing process. But with the blank state of a startup, I think really hiring the right people and bringing on a good mix of thinkers and big picture, I guess, dreamers uh, mixed with executors. And if you're lucky, you can get rare combination of both in one person is uh, is really what working in a startup means for me. Jason Lemkin is known for saying that the first 50 people at any given startup need to be pirates and romantics. <laughs> what do you make up about the profile of those early team members as opposed to team members 200 through 400? Yeah. Um, every single person that I work with is so excited by the challenge of the unknown. I feel like big project we've been working on is up-leveling our recruiting process and the way that we onboard new employees to the company. And one of the things that I am very clear on when I'm interviewing candidates is that you have to be excited by the chaos of not knowing an answer. I think it's really hard for people, especially people who come from the 100 to 400 person company stage, to feel like they don't know an answer to something. And so what I find is incredibly um, characteristic of those earliest employees is that they're very comfortable with that uncertainty. They feel okay saying, no, I actually don't know the answer to what you're asking me. Um, they're okay having that honesty and respect with their colleagues and uh, from my perspective, hopefully there are customers with what's doable, what's not doable, and where we're going to be able to bend over backwards to get stuff done, and where we're going to have to draw a hard line at, no, not right now, but if it's important, we can commit to a future vision for it. So I guess that's a long way of saying you have to be really resilient, and you have to be really comfortable with uncertainty. Hmm. I want to talk about the identity of sports team versus family. Two really different opinionated ways of viewing and thinking about a company. Where do you fall on that metaphor? Yeah, I, I try not to fall into that. You know, I know it's become a little bit of a trope to say, you know, our company is like a family. I think I view them. I view them very differently. Um, I definitely f fall more into the sports team metaphor, um, but I think they're. The sentiment I'd like to take away from the whole concept of a startup being a family is that there's an inherent level of trust um, and an element of the level of respect that you have for your family members um, and for your team members that you're all working to solve these challenges together. I think with sports teams, um, I like that metaphor better because there's clear goals, there's clear objectives. And maybe some of the complications that the family metaphor would imply are a little bit less intertwined with the sports metaphor. I think that however way you perceive it, the bottom line is you are not treating your colleagues at a startup the same way that you would maybe treat colleagues at a larger organization. Um, you really have to be in the trenches. And I have to trust that if I need something from one of my colleagues to hold up on a commitment for a customer or something that maybe we haven't committed to, but would be really meaningful to improve the customer experience, then I have to trust that if I'm going to go talk to our engineering and our product team and say, hey, look, I know this wasn't part of the original scope, what's doable? I have to trust that if they say, you know, I can free up some time, free up some resources, we're going to have to shift other priorities, that 
they understand it's important. And I can also trust that if they say, look, no, I, I can't commit to this right now, but I can be clear on when I can deliver, um, that they're actually being true to their word. Mm. Um, whereas I think larger companies can maybe get a little more political and in corporate and the startup culture is very trusting that everyone is operating in the same direction, rowing the boat on the same team, but you're not necessarily uh, having any sort of ulterior motive. Everyone's headed in the right direction. I think the more shallow view uh, or the difference in more shallow analysis of those two options between a family versus a sports team is that at first glance, the family looks like the orientation is care. And I mean, that is what family yeah. is, right? Like unconditional love, for example. That's a beautiful thing to see in a family setting. In a company kind of setting, it's a it, that could be a one-way ticket to tolerating non-performance. Whereas by contrast, looking at the sports team metaphor, that can feel cutthroat to some people, particularly if you don't have any kind of sports background and the idea of competing or, let's say, for example, upgrading talent. That can feel really threatening to some people. If you're on a sports team chasing a championship, it is obvious that that is what you do. Then the question becomes, can we also have care for human beings in that context, or is that necessarily heartless? My experience is that when you're cultivating talent and you're really committed to it, it is not a transactional here today, you did good today, but now you're gone. That doesn't scale. That's that's not efficient. Yeah. That's massively uh, costly for morale, et cetera. How do you think about how being oriented on performance and high performance incorporates real genuine care for team members? Yeah. Um, so before I answer that question, I actually, when you were just sharing your thoughts on the sports versus family metaphor, um, the word choice popped into my mind. You don't have a choice to be a part of your family, mm. but you have a choice to be a part of a sports team. And I think that is something that people have to respect very deeply. Um, it is extremely possible for the most talented, the most, you know, intellectual, uh, the most capable employees to just get up and walk away and take their talents elsewhere, similarly with a sports team. To answer your question about why, you know, the, sort of the trade-offs between performance and caring about employees is important, um, especially in the startup landscape, is that when you think about results, so whether it's the sales team closing a certain amount of deals in any given quarter or the product team shipping everything that they had originally proposed as a part of the product roadmap. Those are hard deliverables in my mind, but the concept of treating your people right and caring about employees and having that inherent sense of trust um, is that at the end of the day, we're not robots. Everyone has things going on in their personal life outside of work. Um, everyone has different levels of, you know, how they view their work-life balance and their trade-offs there. And so caring about your employees is respecting that even if goals, you know, are not being hit or any of those tangible results are, uh, it's all work in progress. So you, it's all the steps that you have to take to get up to those tangible results. And I think that the care element comes in along the way where you're making sure that, look, something happened throughout the whole quarter. If at the end of the quarter, you're not seeing the results that you want. Um, and it's really a day-by-day -day process. You're not going to be sitting there dumbfounded at the end of the quarter if 
your team didn't deliver um, from a managerial perspective and even just, you know, working closely with colleagues, you want to make sure that everyone is hitting metrics along the way. And those I feel like are the, I guess, almost softer day-to-day repetitions Mm -hmm. that lead Mm -hmm. up to these giant goals. So there's no big surprises. People are clear where they stand all along the way. Yeah, and I think I think that's the the kindest thing you can do for someone is just give feedback. And um, it it is never a surprise to me when a top performer excels and hits all the goals because I saw the work that went into that. And with weekly one-on-ones or even just the general feedback loop that tends to exist with the Phoenix company culture, um, it doesn't feel like a lot of surprises really show up because we all genuinely care about receiving feedback as a gift and giving feedback as a gift. Mm, well said. As a sales leader, how do you think about wanting the juice from product, Yeah, wanting new features, wanting things to push that are going to juice you hitting quota versus removing the agency from your team by being overly reliant on another department who fundamentally they don't oversee and cannot control deliverables and timelines? Yeah. So what it really boils down to is communication. We <laughs> communicated extensively about communication at our company offsite last week. Um, and I think that being extremely clear on the sales side with our product team about what we're hearing in market, um, what's resonating with our product, what gaps people are exposing and kind of poking into as something that is going to be core to their goals for the next quarter, two quarters, year out, even longer. Um, And then the product team also having that level of honesty with the sales team. Hey, look, we had this amazing roadmap. We resourced the engineers accordingly. We're ready to start shipping. And then this curveball that we didn't expect from one of our enterprise customers came in and we had to shift priorities so that we can build something else. You know, having those consistent updates and really, really open lines of communication to uh, keep everyone honest is just how we operate. And I think it's the best way to go about things because as a salesperson, especially someone at an early stage company where, you know, you come to these conferences and it's very, very clear um, if there's trust, respect, and, you know, people are willing to spread the good word about your company or not. And what we feel like is if our sales team is going out making promises about capabilities that we don't have or aren't close to being able to deliver on from a product standpoint, then that just devalues our brand reputation and it reduces the level of integrity that anyone, you know, on our product team would feel about how we're perceived. And so conversely, if you're on the product team and you say, we can't do this, we can't do this, we can't do this, then the sales team is going to feel really hamstrung about all the no's. So our product leaders are phenomenal and they're very transparent about what we can deliver, what we can't deliver. And if we reprioritize things, what that looks like. When you think about where you're headed in your career, at the initial outset, you communicated a lot of passion about this specific use case, this set of problems that this company is oriented around. And and I want to hear some more about that. But I also think when you articulate a passion in startups, that is somewhat generic. That is to say, if you weren't, well, when you weren't here previously, you were at other companies and at some point you may be somewhere else in the future. What generically do you look for as the compelling proposition that makes you have it makes you, that compels you and gives you the confidence to put your time and reputation pushing something into the market? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I care 
because my career, I've worked in advertising, I've worked in e-commerce. Um, I'm now extremely happy in the property management space. So don't expect uh, to go, you know, I've been just to pause for a second. I've been just blown away spending the last two years working and getting so, so deep in the property management space because I feel like a lot of trust and the sense of community that exists, especially in single family, um, makes me feel very, very much like this is a long-term space for me. Mm, lovely. The, yeah, it's been, I appreciate that most property management folks are salespeople themselves. You constantly have to be working hard to uphold your brand reputation. You constantly have to be working to become attractive to future tenants. You have to really be working hard to establish these relationships in the industry because so much of the tech stack and property management hinges on being able to partner successfully with other companies, either up funnel or down funnel. And so I really, really enjoy this space a lot. Um, but when it comes to the way that I think about startups and the types of companies that I look for are really the big picture vision um, and the meaningful impact to the experience. So with Findings, for example, our commitment to the renter's experience was something that I felt like was one of the most important challenges, um, you know, from a socioeconomic perspective Housing. in this country. Yeah. And I didn't feel like it was... Not to, you know, come across as, you know, potentially devaluing other industries or other companies, but I didn't feel like working anywhere that was a little widget as a part of a larger picture. Blockchain for dog walking wasn't as compelling. Wasn't wasn't interested in blockchain for dog walking. Um, I really wanted to solve something that felt uh, extremely important, and I uh, I love how decisive. Our team has been in choosing our values. Um, one of them is build for every renter. And I felt like that core value for the market we're able to service now would be able to grow with a market we're able to service in five years and service in 10 years. Um, and that felt to me like the trajectory of a startup that I wanted to join and somewhere that I wanted to stay and somewhere I wanted to, an industry I want to be in long term. So tell me more. What was broken about the baseline experience? And, yeah. and what pain had you experienced firsthand personally? Yeah. So um, I have lived in seven different apartments over the last decade. And every single time I have applied for one of those apartments, I've had a different concern based on where I am in my life. So when I was in my, I guess I rented my first apartment when I was 21 years old. And my biggest concern at that point was financially, how can I do this? And as I'm filling out this rental application, do I feel like the fee structure is transparent? Do I feel like I understand what I'm getting myself into? Or are there going to be a bunch of surprises down the road that are going to be costly to me as a 21-year-old uh, working my very first job in New York City uh, and living in my parents' house and, and commuting into the city for over an hour? Um, I'd save some money. And now I was ready to get my own place. And I still felt financially insecure to be able to do that. So the runner experience didn't feel very comfortable for me. Um, that was me when I was 21. There are plenty of Americans that feel that financial insecurity now. I mean, I think at any age, uh, it's very, very possible that you 
are signing onto this document. Um, in some cases, you have uh, annual commitments, two-year commitments. It's your, it's so core to the fundamental human experience to have housing that the ambiguity around it felt deeply concerning to me. Uh, when I was 25 and applying for an apartment, I didn't need a guarantor anymore. Um, but I was really concerned with, you know, I don't have this guarantor. What is potentially the liability meaning for me from a legal standpoint? What if I, I was living in New York at the time? What if I wanted to move to California, which I ended up doing? Um, I had to understand what flexibility I had as a part of my lease. And when I was going through the renter application, I didn't feel like any of that was transparent. Uh, when I moved to San Francisco and I had to apply for a lease in the incredibly competitive housing market there, um, I didn't understand where I would stand in the process. Didn't feel like tenant qualifications were clear. I didn't understand uh, what I was going to be up against. So throughout every single personal experience that I've had, I just had different concerns. And when I think about FindEggs and the renter experience that we provide, we work really closely with the property management company to customize and convey whatever data and information is going to be uh, good for the property management company, but also in compliance with fair housing and uh, take all of that and convey into a really, really good applicant experience so that no matter where you are in your life and what's top of mind for you, you're going to feel comfortable with the process. And we take the fact that we pretty much sit at the top of the funnel very, very seriously. In a lot of cases, we're the very first first touch point that a runner has with the property management company. So we don't take that for granted at all. Um, we want everyone to feel extremely, you know, good about it. Another important thing, uh, when I was applying for my most recent lease, I started to have a lot of very serious security concerns. You know, I'm at the point now where I don't want to be sending all my information off. When I was 21, I was less concerned with where my social security number was going. Now I'm thinking, what's what's going what's on with, with our data? And, and I feel like I know too much now about how technology companies <laughs> operate and, uh, and the level of compliance and thought that goes into that. Um, I talk about this all the time with our with our general counsel. And, <laughs> and that's another thing that we convey within the runner experience that I don't think is true of most. Mm. When you add all of that up and you think about the difference between what historically has been available versus what's available now, my observation is that this um, use case has not had a ton of entrance in it. Like applications have typically been pretty tied inextricably to the property accounting software platform. Why now? Yeah. Um, why not? Why hasn't this happened sooner? Yeah, great question. Um, so I think immense credit is is due to the property management software companies who have built incredible experiences and a lot of functionality for existing tenants. And because of the focus on the tenant experience, making rent payments easier, um, making it easier to file maintenance requests, things like that, less of the focus has been on that initial applicant experience because fundamentally the ethos of property management software is to service the existing tenant, not the prospective tenants or anyone going through the application process. Um, so just fundamentally, I think it's been an underserved space because people haven't been focused as much on it uh, because it has been core to the typical te more tenant-focused uh, platforms. But I think the why now of why it's so important 
is when you look at, you know, the statistics on homeownership versus renting, um, it has never been uh, more crucial to really prioritize the renter experience as the industry has grown so much and interest rates have changed dramatically and the typical American consumer is skewing more and more heavily towards the runner. I think the information age has deeply accelerated the way that people think about sharing their data. There's really no point in the life of an average American where they would share information, more information about themselves as when they're applying for a mortgage or applying for a rental property. Um, and so considering that journey and what people are now aware of, uh, what happens with their data, the level of transparency they can expect from companies, um, it sort of coalesced into the perfect timing for FindEggs. I mean, we were the very, very first solution to say, you know, we deeply care about the renter experience, starting with the application. Um, we're going to offer bank linking and payroll linking as a part of a way for you to verify your income. Not only is it significantly more secure than sending a pay stub with your important secure financial information or details that contain PII into some inbox where it's going to sit in perpetuity and you don't know what happens to it, you don't know where it's being shared. Um, that was something that was innovative a couple years ago. Now you see a lot of solutions popping up with these integrations that can support bank linking and payroll linking. And the focus now shifts to how can I even further bolster this easy, easy applicant experience, um, but also service the property management companies. So Finex recently introduced a product we've been working on for, uh, gosh, almost two years at this point. Um, it's a product that will effectively take a pay stub or a bank statement um, and analyze down to the most granular pixelated level whether or not the document has been altered. And it will share with the property management companies, leasing teams, um, elements of the document that are indic indicative of potential fraud. And some we, we have this nice feature that shows all the tips. You know, for example, if the fonts or the expected format of a Bank of America statement doesn't match our understanding of the, you know, all the Bank of America statements that we've analyzed, um, then we're going to flag that. And we're going to say not this document looks like it's, you know, potentially off, but we're going to say, here's why we think it's off. This is a document that's reminiscent of something that we've seen from pdffiller.com, which mm -hmm. is a common website mm -hmm. that people can buy fake pay stubs on. We can say this is, um, you know, unexpected fonts for a Wells Fargo statement, things like that. So not only is the applicant able to easily link their bank account, link their payroll, upload documentation, but now that the leasing team is spending way less time chasing down additional documentation, verifying if it looks real or not, frankly, based off of a subjective, frankly, probably not fair housing compliant opinion on whether it looks, you know, good or not. Um, that's dramatically extending the amount of time that the applicant has to wait for an answer and the applicant is living in their home and able to start their moving process. So really cutting down on all of that um, is is one of our goals, but that's uh, that's sort of how we're thinking about all of that. When I think about timing, I think about the leverage that the prospective tenant has ebbing and flowing with the strength of the rental market. Right now, markets are softening. So we've gone from to some extent, apathy, really, some uh, callousness towards prospective tenants around like, hey, this is the situation. If you want it, 
take action. If not, good luck. Whereas now, as things slow down, as there's greater time on market, there's a lot more sensitivity to looking at friction and asking, where can we remove friction from the process? What are you seeing in terms of the uh, strength and weakness of the various markets that you guys serve? Yeah, I mean, we're absolutely seeing a shift across the board in the single family space and the multifamily space towards prioritizing the applicant and the runner experience. Um, I think you're absolutely right. It hasn't been paid attention to necessarily in the way that we believe it should in the past. Um, and I think, yes, that can be explained based on market factors. But I think in a lot of respects, the entire world um, is shifting towards a more consumer-friendly expectation. Uh, a decade ago, it was probably a strange concept for most Americans to call a car from your phone and have it arrive immediately on time. Now that's the absolute expectation from pretty much any demographic across the country. Um, it was Airbnb being another good example, um, before you didn't really have many, many good options to figure out a quick, easy, seamless way uh, to rent a short-term home, vacation, weekend home, something like that. Um, Airbnb has made all the optionality for certain markets extremely accessible to the consumer, and it's a pretty seamless consumer experience to just be able to do that. So... Everything that the American consumer has been presented with, oh, I can quickly call an Uber. I can quickly rent a home on Airbnb. I can quickly get something delivered to me on DoorDash. Really, this kind of time-sensitive uh, shift in the economy and the consumer perception of the way that things should be um, makes it the perfect timing for findings. It makes it the perfect timing for the property management industry at large to be focusing on that that time and that efficiency and that consumer experience. What kind of a handoff does Find Digs do? At the end of the cycle of what the product is intended to do, what, what kicks off next? Yeah, so we have sort of two core features included within our product right now. So the first is the rental application. So the handoff from a traditional Apply Now link or any third-party service like Zillow is pretty easy and seamless, we can just replace an application link. Um, and then the applicant is within the Findix universe. They're completing their application powered by Findix. Once that submission happens, then everything will go into a dashboard that we have created where applications can be reviewed and decisioned, or we can send it directly to the property management software via API uh, from the moment that the application is submitted. If the leasing team wants to review it within the findings interface, then upon decision, that will pretty seamlessly flow into your property management software. So there's some pretty clean cut handoffs. Something that we've noticed is really important with some of the other tools that people use in the system, um, like Knock with Lead Simple, with anyone that needs to be communicated with, is more of these time sensitive versus action sensitive data pushes. So for example, um, We've heard in market that it's pretty frustrating for property managers to track the, le the life cycle of an applicant, and some are interested in real-time updates, some just want the decision. So we can basically structure our product to operate according to when people want their data, and those handoffs can occur at different inflection points. But the most common is when a decision is made or an application is submitted. That's where handoffs occur. Who do you guys have direct integrations with? 
Yeah. So we partner directly with brand manager, MRI, Yardi, and we have the ability to work um, extremely closely with Appfolio, Propertyware. Uh, we have many customers using Lead Simple, and we have uh, Tenant Turner, Show Mojo. We take a really, really partner friendly approach. Um, and so whether we have a formal partnership program established or whether we just have an API connection, um, we we like to keep everything as open as possible to make it as nice of an experience for the applicant and for the property management company. Having been in other industries, what are your observations around the level of openness or the nature of the ecosystem here in property management? Yeah, I think companies take certain stances. We saw a huge shift with Appfolio in the last couple of years, um, really opening up their partner program. And I think that in general, my answer to your question would be on a more company-specific basis. FindX takes the approach of examining lots of different pieces of software. We, for example, um, just launched a new ID verification partner called Footprint. Um, historically, we'd use Persona. And the intention is when we get feedback on product functionality to be able to take a look at other vendors that exist in the space and see what's going to potentially better serve uh, either a specific client or our customer base at large. Um, so we're not trying to, unless something is within our core competency, we're not necessarily trying to build it all in-house and on our own. We believe deeply that you know, rising tides lift all boats and we don't want to potentially cut ourselves off to a better runner experience or a better experience for the leasing team um, by not bringing on more partners and more integrations and more vendors. At this point, frankly, it's a question of resourcing. Um, and as we grow our engineering teams and our integrations team, we want to be able to take a really decisive look at, you know, what partners can we potentially bring into our ecosystem or consequently what ecosystems we can be a part of where we can really bring value and invest. So, How do you think the sales function partnering with product to surface feedback that is like useful, both in terms of the use case, but also potentially like market expansion, et cetera? What does that collab between sales and product look like? Yeah. At, at FindEggs, it is like this. Um, we rely extremely heavily, especially on our uh, well, actually, I was about to say we rely heavily on our largest customers, but the reality is we have different people that we go to across enterprise, mid-market, and SMB to get the most holistic perspective on who we're building for, what the needs in market are. Um, it's, of course, always going to be a trade-off between listening to your customer and then distilling all of that feedback down across multiple customers in many segments um, and using their feedback to test assumptions that we've already made about where the future of our product should be headed. Um, I don't think we'd be doing our jobs right if we weren't thinking about what should be next before we hear it from the customer. But as we are growing at an extremely rapid rate, uh, we are consistently being made aware of things in our product that people view as nice-to-haves and needs, need-to-haves that we have to really, really take seriously as well. What do you think makes for a great seller? I think it depends on the role. I don't want to answer that as a blanket statement because if you ask me what makes a great seller within the SMB and the mid-market space, it's more about understanding where opportunities are and being a little bit more 
decisive and actionable towards customer needs at scale. Um, when it comes to the enterprise experience, people who do not get frustrated and see the bigger picture and see the long term because typically enterprise sales cycles are a lot longer. Um, but across both of those, I think that the common answer would be you have to be a listener. Mm. I think it's mm. a very service level uh, default instinct for people to perceive salespeople as talkers. Mm -hmm. I think that good salespeople, the best salespeople I've ever worked with, listen more than they talk. And that all ties back into the commitment for genuinely understanding what the customer needs. You're not going to be an effective salesperson unless you can deeply internalize that. So there are tactical things like being able to, at the SMB and mid-market level, assess opportunities. Um, and when you, you know, m smaller companies have the unbelievable blessing of decision makers mostly being in the room and being able to make quicker decisions. Whereas larger companies have many contingencies that are involved in the decision-making process to bring on new vendors. So it's fundamentally just different tactically, um, but you just, you can't function as a successful salesperson unless you are genuinely understanding the needs at every level. How do you make a qualification conversation real if you're not willing to disqualify a certain subset of leads. I want to hear more from you. Like what's yeah. the key to qualification in your mind? Yeah. So I think it goes back to just being really tightly uh, intertwined with our product organization. You need to understand what our product currently supports. In my mind, the worst thing that you can do or any salesperson can do is future sell to a degree mm -hmm. where you cross into the dishonesty threshold. Um, I think that in every conversation, you can't do your job unless you're future selling the product capabilities and the vision a bit, but you have to be clear about where their line is. And all of our account executives are trained with that level of transparency. Um, we've seen it in our turn rates, which are just industry leading low. I mean, we see less than 1.5% of our volume on an annual basis not working with us after I think the latest look back was a six-month look back. It's quite low. Um, yeah, it's incredibly low. And a lot of that, you know, I can absolutely give immense credit to our customer success teams, our onboarding team, uh, the willingness of our product and engineering teams to uh, plug holes where they need to if a customer is dissatisfied. But I think it really starts with sales. And you have to be very clear about product capabilities. And that can't happen unless you speak with your product team on a regular basis and understand what we're, what we're doing. One of the dis distinctives that I experience in SMB is that sometimes people have some stories about the caliber of talent that they're able to recruit because it's a service business, because they're in, in PM, whatever. My experience is that managing a high caliber of talent is materially different than managing lower caliber of talent. And depending upon the type of work that's going to look differently. But at its core, working with great talent looks like providing compelling opportunities that are highly stimulating. This ship is going somewhere. Yeah. For you, for the leaders that you've worked under and for the leaders that you look to work, partner with in the future, what are you looking for from the leadership that you want to be working with? Yeah. Um, I think good leaders identify the strengths of the people they work with really quickly. Um, and they're also able to find ways to really double down on those strengths. 
Um, so for example, a lot of the best sellers that I've ever worked with have, it's almost this magic that you can't even make up where they just are able to really, really get to the right decision maker. They're able to find themselves in the room with someone during the right time to make, you know, someone with purchasing intent. Um, it's this, it's this magic that requires a lot of hard work, research, exceptional interpersonal skills. Um, but maybe they're not indexing so high on the organizational component. Um, I was raised by a phenomenal salesperson. My mom, uh, I can't think any other way because I don't know how. Um, my mom is a, a career sales professional and everything about my life has been structured to think like a salesperson. Um, if we, if we, uh, you know, weren't, we're going on vacation that year, it was because mom had a great year. If, if, you know, don't even think about asking for this at Christmas. This was not a great year. Uh, you know, I, I just, I kind of am, am key to living my life that way. And I, uh, <laughs> I know a lot of these tendencies right off the bat. And so it's really easy for me to spot um, with a lot of the salespeople that mm, I manage mm, and I work with mm. where their weaknesses are, because I actually already know what to look for. Um, I think that actively training towards those weaknesses while doubling down on the strengths is uh, really the a good what great managers have is that aptitude of of doing that and I don't want to say work around the gaps or the weaknesses I'd like to think that everyone I'm coaching towards consistently improving a lot of where people that I manage might have gaps um, I think it goes back to feedback I really like when uh, leaders that I admire who've managed me in the past um, are really quick and really honest to say, you're phenomenal at this. This is, this word is so cliche, but that your superpower is this. And then they'll say, look, let's, if we can all be honest here, uh, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest on, on a podcast. I have gotten feedback in the past that because I listen so much about the customer experience and you, and the new unique pain points that the people that we're selling into and our customers experience, um, I haven't provided our product teams with as much hard data as they might maybe would have liked. Um, engineering brains think in terms of data. They don't think in terms of these anecdotes or these impassioned customer experiences. And so being able to bridge that gap is a big piece of feedback that I've gotten. Um, and so working with, you know, leadership that I really admire that's been honest with me that says, hey, look, this is an area where I could see you improving. And I think our product team would be way better informed if you were able to say these amazing customer anecdotes and why you're able to look across a broad segment of customers and distill down their experience into actionable things that they've brought to you, but like put some data behind it. We need to actually look into the numbers here and we need to be able to quantify it because that's how we're looking at the overarching uh, swath of priorities we need to, to tackle. Um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't have, it, it hurts in the moment when you're like, oh my gosh, I, I'm sorry I wasn't providing you with, with some of the answers that you wanted before, but I respect leadership deeply for giving me that feedback instead of it coming around to me later that mm. I wasn't helping a team member doing something that I needed to do. Mm. So really doubling down on those strengths and, and identifying the weaknesses and having candid conversations is so meaningful from a leadership perspective. 
Chris, how do you manage and harness some of the manicness and compulsiveness that can make you great and effective, but can also turn dark and destructive? My experience of high performers is like there's this drive and it can be really powerful. Yeah. It's like fire, you know, but yeah. you can also light yourself on fire. Yeah. So fortunately, um, very fortunately, I know I'm lucky to be able to say this, but I haven't encountered that all too much in my career. Um, I've seen and heard it happen um, in pretty, pretty dramatic fashion uh, from other colleagues and, and other companies. Um, but I do think burnout is real. And it's something that we are really, really cognizant about addressing. High performers hold themselves and the people around them to incredibly high standards. Um, and so being able as a leader to identify those boundaries um, that may or may not be uh, set by the individual um, is really a core part of what I do and what I make sure people are, you know, indexing towards. Um, if I see someone that is waking up at five o'clock in the morning and working until 11, 12 at night, um, I would be pretty quick to identify that that's not sustainable. And I'm not minimizing the importance of hard work. I just think that if you're pulling crazy hours consistently for a really long time and you're not keeping your health in check, that's something that is a big red flag to me. Um, and so I don't want anyone to experience that level of burnout on my team. And so I would like to think that we've created a space at our company for people to surface, um, hey, look, I, I, really, I really am doing too much. And if they're not able to identify that, then having leaders that are empowered to kind of call it out and ask how they're feeling about that is, is really important. What's the one piece of advice that you would have given your younger self? I think people assume that every salesperson is really confident because in order to be a great salesperson, you have to be a good public speaker. You have to be a good listener. You have to kind of react in a way that makes people feel like you're so engaged all the time. Um, you can't be lazy. You can't be any of these things. And so, but I think the reality with a lot of salespeople or customer facing people in general is all of those things are, can be surface level to a degree. And what I've witnessed sometimes is that people have this underlying self-doubt and aren't so confident. And I think I would have just been a little bit more honest with myself earlier on in my career about that. I think doing the repetition, going through sales motion. I mean, I've been in sales for over a decade at this point, and I plan on being in sales for the entire rest of my life. And I think that being more honest with my younger self about you don't have to, it's okay to have self-doubt. You just have to be honest with yourself and moving forward. Um, mm. I think as people get older in general, um, and as they become more experienced in their careers, you sort of reach this really healthy, really freeing middle ground where that doubt kind of dissipates because you've done this for a while and you've been in the room and you feel good about what you're selling and you're able to feel like you don't have to psych yourself up before sales conversations because your product is something that you can get behind and feel comfortable sharing in market. Um, but when I was younger, I felt a lot of, oh man, I, I am acting so confident, but I'm 22. What does that mean? And I worked for a great company when I was 22. And 
I felt like there were so many older and more experienced people than me, but I knew all the same things that they did. And I believed in the product just as much as they did. I just didn't have the reps and I didn't have the confidence. So that's probably advice I would have given to my younger self. Everyone's just doing the best they can. And everyone is sort of growing into themselves, regardless of what stage of career you're in. Mm, Well said. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can check out other episodes along the way. If you're watching this on YouTube, appreciate to subscribe. Any comments, I'm always here to engage. If you're listening on an audio platform, we'd really appreciate a review. It's a great way to help other people find out about the show.